This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing what should I expect from my GP or primary care? Osteoarthritis is a frequent reason that a patient would visit their general practitioner or primary care physician, and the predominant reason they would do so is because of pain and increasing activity difficulty. GPs are the primary point person in many healthcare systems and typically would be visited before seeing any other healthcare professional, including for exercise, diet, or surgery. Many patients with osteoarthritis have other serious comorbidities within which osteoarthritis is just one of many complicated diseases. And many modern healthcare systems typically don't afford long appointments that would afford behavior change, shared decision-making and counseling that we're all encouraging. In this context of patient complexity and the turnstile of primary care, there are often challenges that patients face in getting adequate, coordinated, and appropriate care. And to discuss this important and complicated area, we're joined by none other than Regina Sitt and George Peace. Dr. Regina Sitt obtained her Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery degree from the University of Hong Kong. She's a family medicine specialist at the Hong Kong Academy of Medicine since 2011. And in addition to a specialist training, she carries qualifications in pediatrics, dermatology, geriatrics, and internal medicine. And as a family physician, she develops special skills in pain management and is a certified interventional pain sinologist by the World Institute of Pain. 
Her clinical and research interests focus on the study of musculoskeletal pain in primary care. She's passionate about exploring, designing, evaluating, and implementing innovative interventions to improve the quality of life of those who suffer from chronic musculoskeletal pain. Currently, she's the director of the Hong Kong Jockey Club Pain Relief Project for Seniors and is leading an interdisciplinary team for chronic pain management in primary care. In addition to Regina Sitt, we're also joined by George Peet, who's a senior lecturer and clinical epidemiologist and physiotherapist who works at Keele University in their primary care musculoskeletal research center. George qualified as a physiotherapist in 1991 from Queen Margaret College in Edinburgh, before going on to gain a master's in public health sciences at Edinburgh University and a PhD in 1998 from Manchester University. He joined the Arthritis Research UK Primary Care Centre at Keele University in 1999. Regina and George, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi there. Thank you very much for coming along. Now, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, any conflicts or disclosures of relevance? No, I don't. I have no conflict of interest. No, I don't. I should say that I'm involved in a trial just now of braces for knee osteoarthritis. I'm not sure if they will crop up in conversation. And I also hold an academic contract with Public Health England, but I don't think either of those constitute the conflict. I don't think so. But in, anyway, good that you disclosed it. Now, the first part of the show, I usually spend a little bit of time just asking you a few probing questions to get to know both of you a little better. And so, Regina, what I might do is, if, if it's all right, I'm going to start with you. Okay, sure. But, but if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Well, I think about this. I'm in five words, maybe a self-motivated person with strong perseverance. So I usually, when I decided to do something, I must finish it. Yeah, great, great qualities to have. Very good qualities to have. And... Professionally, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis at work? So I'm a family medicine doctor and also a clinical academia. I'm the associate professor of family medicine in the Chinese University of Hong Kong. So uh, in my daily work, I have three parts of work that I need to do. First is research. The second is about my clinical work, see my patients every day. And then I have to teach. I teach a lot of medical students. Sounds like you have a very full plate. What makes up the large portion of that balance? Very lucky because my research and clinical areas are focusing on the same things, on dealing with uh, different kinds of musculoskeletal complaints. So I would say both of it uh, fill up majority of my uh, time doing my work. Yeah. Now, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? Well, I'm a mother of two. So usually after work, I will spend time with my kids and just play as any mothers. <laughs> and usually after, when I have my own private time, I will go running. Running? Yes. Well, fantastic. How, how old are your kids, Regina? One is nine, one is ten, one boy and one girl. So right in the thick of it. it sounds, it sounds like a very similar age to yours, George. Yes. Yeah. Now, George, similar questions to you. But if you had to use the same, or not in the same five words, but if you had to use five <laughs> words to describe yourself, what would they be? 
Well, I was thinking about this. We get we get so many of these tests that you have to do now to place yourself as a teacher or a learner, etc. I've I've been told that my style is particularly deliberative, so I, I'm. I wouldn't use the word ponderous, but it kind of gets towards that end at times. Uh, rational, uh, I've been told that I have high integrity and I'm generally a supportive person. They're all the nice things. Uh, I won't list all <laughs> the other that have also been described. Yeah, we don't need for you to share any of the not nice things here. We just want to hear about the positive things. Again, professionally, when you're in your day job, what, what is it that you do? It's uh, it's almost all research now. Although there's there's an increasing amount of uh, training and teaching uh, involved, so we design research studies in primary care, working in teams with our GP colleagues, physiotherapists, other healthcare professionals, uh, to design mostly quantitative research studies. So these are studies involving large numbers of uh, people to look at matters of diagnosis, uh, outcomes, interventions, and treatment. And I'm involved in some of the teaching towards medical students and some of the, the master's level training and, and PhD student supervision too. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that with us. Now, obviously, we've got you up early in the morning UK time, so sleep can't be high on your priority list. But what are the things that you do enjoy when you're not at work? Yeah, I, like Regina, I've got two daughters, aged 11 and 9. So, so they oh, tend to keep me pretty busy. So we have been doing a lot of ferrying to and from swimming that's their great passion used to be mine so I have to say I occasionally get in the pool these days but not particularly gracefully um, but I try and get exercise where I can but a lot of it now is I'm afraid supporting them to, to be the next generation of, of sports people. That's superb but now when when you swim what type of event I mean did you compete at any point? Oh, now you're going back in time. Yes. <laughs> Should I say that I was an Edinburgh champion at 50 metres breaststroke? Fantastic. Wow. That's superb. Yeah, it, was a, it was a very small cohort that year. That's excellent. I uh, did a lot of swimming and particularly ocean swimming growing up. Oh. Um, and so it still remains an important passion of mine when the water's warm enough to get me outside. Yeah. yeah. Obviously taking time away from the important topic of today, which is really looking at how best patients can best engage in, in primary care with their general practitioners and other healthcare professionals. Now, a really important part of medicine is shared decision-making. Um, and within the time limits of oftentimes constrained appointments within primary care, how is it best to share information and counsel with patients, particularly with regards their management choice. Regina, I don't know whether you want to tackle that one first and then I might kick to George for another one. Unfortunately, we don't have any tours that at this moment, especially in our setting, that actually help us to make a very effective shared decision making. As a primary care doctor in Hong Kong, no matter you're at private or at the public setting, we see quite lots of patients, especially if you're in the public settings, we are seeing 40 patients in the morning. So each of them like got four to five minutes, which will many of the time we spend the a majority of the time in taking a history. And then when it comes to the decision, it's always the physician's decision. It's more than, well, I would say there's not, not really a kind of shared decision making. So um, we're really looking forward to one, but it's a kind of very unfortunate that we don't have it yet. Okay. Now, 
George, whether it, whether it be about information available in advance of the appointment or things that a person with osteoarthritis can do to prime themselves in advance, any any suggestions, topics, thoughts on that on that regard? Yeah, I mean, certainly a, a group from our our university developed what, what we called an OA guidebook, so an osteoarthritis guidebook, which is quite a comprehensive written set of information, and that's publicly available. And I, I think that that's that's we've found that that's quite a good resource, often for people. Not everybody, uh, clearly, but some people find that that's both either reading that prior to. Uh, going to see the doctor. More often it's afterwards when it's recommended as a way of reinforcing information that's given in the consultation. But that can help just crystallise some thoughts. And clearly there's quite a lot of stuff out there now about things like shared decision making and decision aids, etc. There seem to be angled a lot towards the decision about where not to, to have a joint replacement. Um, there's, there seems to be much less at that earlier stage in primary care where you're looking at the non-surgical options and I suppose if one were to be critical of those, there's a big variation in the quality of these things. And it's not entirely clear that they're always reaching the people that might need that information the most. So it might be that these sorts of options, whether it be M Health, the mobile health options, others may be favouring those that are slightly more able to access you know, online resources, for example. So I would say that the the consultation still remains a really important place where you exchange information. And I think just listening to the patient's agenda is probably one of the first and most important things that a primary care professional can do. Yeah, yeah. So just, I guess, quickly, just to recap what you were saying there. I mean, I think obviously there are some written resources that, that are available. What, George, we might do is just provide a link to that resource that you just mentioned in the show notes yeah. so that people can access that and that they might be able to read that in advance of seeing uh, their primary healthcare professional to better inform them about the disease and or the questions that they might propose to ask in, in that consultation period, um, obviously focused on what their most important concerns and goals might be. Mm. Yeah. Now, George, I might kick to you in the first instance for this one, but another really important element of treatment around osteoarthritis is that of behaviour change, such as exercise and weight loss, and particularly adherence or sticking to that behaviour change over time. Now, what role, if any, should someone in a primary care health professional context have in optimising that? And in particular, given some of the studies that are out there, does nihilism about treatment to non-surgical approaches potentially erode some of that credibility and belief in those treatment options? Well, I think that that's, that is pretty undeniably true. I think a lot of the evidence that's been accumulating now, both from uh, studies that are listening to the accounts that patients give, as well as other studies looking at what factors might determine whether or not you go back to the doctor and raise your problem with them about your joints, suggests that you know, if you anticipate or experience a, a kind of fairly negative downbeat, well, there's nothing much we can do here. 
I think that tends to have knock-on consequences, both to the willingness to seek that support from the healthcare professionals, but also your own uh, optimism about managing this and having a having a better outcome. So I think it's really important that that sort of positive approach to trying to manage this non-surgically, not just a waiting for when we might need to think about a joint replacement is really important. And I think a lot of the ideas about self-management, and clearly self-management is essential. I mean, people know that, they live with it, and they've got to manage it. But what they often tell us is they want some support for that. And they look to healthcare professionals and primary care to provide that, not just the GP, um, but of course the, the wide range of health professionals that have contact and influence. So if anybody's tried to lose weight or tried to exercise, you know that it's a bit of a rocky uh, road. You don't, you, you, you don't just succeed miraculously. It's, it's something that you sort of go through troughs and peaks at. And, and sometimes it needs somebody there. And sometimes that's the primary care health professional to support and just provide that additional bit of motivation, really. In the work that you've done at Keel, where you've presumably interacted with a lot of GPs who work in that context, mm. are there any important characteristics or qualities about those types of interactions that you've seen that, that work well in, in affirming or making that experience a positive one? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I suspect that underlying all of it is that relationship between the primary care professional and their patient. I think if that's a trusted one that's based on you know a mutual respect i think the opportunity to support long-term changes in behavior is that much better so i think it requires that underlying and then and then you're talking about the sorts of communication skills i think that healthcare professionals may have and, and clearly some do this better than others but when you see it done well actually you can see patients leaving the consultation with renewed sort of energy and resolve and, and that is important. Yeah no, that's really helpful. Regina I mean obviously you were relaying to us before that you see 40 people in the morning they've got four to five minutes apiece. Yeah. How, how do you achieve that? It's quite difficult when you have a lot of patients but sometimes when I have my clinic that I only got by when I'm teaching at my teaching session I only may have 10 to 12 patients and it will be much easier because it really takes time I agree with George that um, many GPs they don't really encourage their patients to exercise so they just take exercise as one of the prescription one of the sentence they need to talk they need to tell the patients but they don't really motivate them to do that so some GPs, they didn't, they didn't even exercise themselves. So it makes them even more difficult to encourage others to do the same. And for me, I think the, the key for family physicians to help optimizing the behavioral changes is really to explain to the patients why it's important to exercise. Not only that exercise or other dietary control or weight reduction is good, you also need to explain to them the relationship between for example, why muscle strength is important for healthy joints. Once they get it, they know that it's important. But many of the time, we just tell our patients that, oh, let's go for have some exercise, which in, sometimes they, will, they, they are not able to do that. For example, you ask them to run, but they have the joint pain that makes the running very difficult. So many of the time, we have to tell them that there are a variety of exercise that can help your joints. As simple as sitting exercise with the uh, strengthening of the lower limb muscles, it will help as well. But uh, it really, the GP 
to explain to the patients how important it is are kind of like more tailor-made to their patients. Otherwise, the patient, after they listen to the GP, they're not going to change their behavior. Yeah. I mean, I, I think just really to reaffirm and state what uh, Regina and George are saying there, I mean, that positive affirmation, that uh, important relationship that a person has with that first contact is often, often really critical. Um, and if it can be one where they're motivated and engaged to hear the message about what will be helpful for their joint health and you know, ultimately, hopefully reinforced at subsequent interactions as well, and just checking in to see that that's, uh, they're attaining their goals and actually improving is so incredibly helpful and important. The other thing is that the role of that wider team, I think many people will now be seeing multiple members of a primary care team, whether it's they're seeing the pharmacist or a, or a nurse practitioner, and these people often have quite important roles in the ongoing yeah. management of chronic long-term conditions. I suppose the other point to note is that some of these behaviours, losing weight, exercising, share their value across multiple conditions. So whether it's diabetes or heart problems or cardiovascular health or mental health, all of these things tend to operate well. So there, there are probably multiple opportunities to the person that's got a few health problems to try and find a way of, of making these sorts of behaviour changes stick. Yeah. And, you know, whilst we're obviously emphasizing the fact that oftentimes GPs may not have time, hopefully they do engage meaningfully yeah. with the other health professionals in their team, whether, whether that be a nurse practitioner, or a physiotherapist, a dietitian, exercise therapist, whomever it may be, to help to uh, reinforce a, a lot of those really important concepts. Now, Regina, again, you know, GPs occasionally have been known to normalize symptoms as part of a person's life and not validating the symptoms of osteoarthritis and uh, occasionally they might use terms that include wear and tear now what steps can be taken to increase the priority of osteoarthritis as a disease in the minds of general practitioners and increase knowledge and how best to enhance the care that is delivered as a consequence well, that's a really very good question that I'm uh, also wondering. Well, to me, I think the most difficult part is that it's very difficult to engage our GP to focus their management on taking osteoarthritis, knee osteoarthritis or whatever, because they've got a lot of diseases that they need to manage. Hypertension, DM, lupus, obesity, depression. So sometimes I think it's the most difficult part is really to how to engage the GP to ask them, to take some training or to explain to them, I mean, what's causing knee pain? It's not always degeneration. So many of my colleagues, when they see patients with knee osteoarthritis, what will they tell to the, to the patients that, oh, you have degeneration and that's full stop. However, I would always say that degeneration is not, maybe a normal process, but it may not always lead to symptoms that lead to disability. This concept is very important, but we find it very difficult to actually tell every GP that it's not only degeneration. There's a lot of things that we can do before the symptoms occur, or at least we can reduce the severity of symptoms. That's really helpful, Regina. George, do you have any elaboration on, on that topic at all? Yeah, it, it strikes me that it's, it's, it's a, they're treading a, a fine line often, isn't it? I, mean, I think on, on the one hand, you don't want to over-medicalise 
and start over-treating and over-diagnosing and over-investigating something like osteoarthritis. Uh, but clearly you also want to have a legitimate diagnosis. You want to understand and have heard the nature of this problem and its impact, which can be quite significant, obviously, in, on, on people. So, I mean, my sense is that one of the things that can be done, I think I absolutely agree with Regina, that I think education for GPs is, uh, and primary care professionals is very important here. And that's, that's across one's career, not just at the start of it. But I suppose I, I also would look for fairly practical tips. I think sometimes even just knowing the words to use when trying to explain the diagnosis of osteoarthritis, we overlook because I think sometimes you reach for things like wear and tear with the best of motives, but it's the wrong term. It doesn't convey scientifically what we know to be true about the condition, but I think it's an attempt to try and not frighten or worry or over-medicalise the condition. But actually, I think there's, there's other language here and better explanations that are needed. And maybe some of the things that we could do is actually you know, work out what are the right words to be using in the consultation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one has to modify that for each individual. But I think even those practical steps could be useful. I suspect this is where some of the other health conditions may have got when explaining or giving the diagnosis. Yeah. And I think potentially that's also where some of the resources you were referring to before mm -hmm. to increase a patient's own information base and health mm -hmm. literacy around this topic could also be so important in engaging in meaningful dialogue around that. What efforts are either of you aware of that are underway to, I guess, upskill, increase knowledge base and engagement around osteoarthritis specifically? Obviously, fully aware that the job in primary care is one that they see a lot of different complex non-communicable diseases, but what efforts are underway to increase health professional knowledge base that you're aware of? Well, at this point, I would recommend you towards my colleague, Krisha Jodzic as well, who's heavily engaged, uh, I think, in, in a lot of initiatives to try and improve care on the ground with practitioners. So engaging uh, practitioners, both in uh, training and actually implementation, they would call it. Uh, so this is sort of implementation science now is not just discovering what works, but actually trying to make sure that what works is actually happening in practice. So I think those sorts of initiatives engaging not just GPs, but also pharmacists, physiotherapists, others in upskilling them, giving them the practical tools to deliver better care. And I suspect, I mean, those sorts of Osteoarthritis management programs, I think, are you know, increasingly an important part internationally of improving patient care. So I know that there are examples in, in your institution, David, but there are also ones in North America, elsewhere in Europe and, and within the UK too. And they appear to be a really, really important step forward, actually, in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of effort underway there to increase the availability and accessibility of mm. uh, those programs. And what the other thing that I might do just in response to the comment that you've missed, just made there, George, is provide a link there to the Knowledge Translation Acceleration Unit that Krisha uh, leads yeah. up and, and runs there, because I think that'll be a really helpful uh, resource and, and link there. Regina, any, any yeah. thoughts, comments on that? 
No, I agree with George. Um, I think education should be on both sides. So we should educating our patients by doing a lot of different kinds of either digital tours, health education pamphlets, or kind of very well wrapped up program for our patients. But at the same time, we also need to educate our primary care providers that they should actually like more explanation on the disease, not so negative on the words, uh, not always telling patients that, oh, this is a kind of degeneration that nothing is that we can do. That in fact, a lot of things that we can do, for example, many of the time you see like 15 years old lady presented with knee pain, and then the GP will automatically tell the patients that, oh, you are having a degeneration. But she's just 15, it's not yet to degeneration yet, but just that they cannot get other words to describe this why there's a knee pain. So they tend to use the word degeneration, which is the kind of very discouraging. So the woman just come for knee pain and then she know that, oh, I got degeneration. That means I'm at this stage of aging. So I think this is very important that it's not only for the patients, but we also need to educate the primary care providers. When they frame their words, they try to explain in details what's actually happening and what things that actually we can do apart from watchful waiting. That's really helpful. Um, and obviously, we've been outlining a lot of challenges and issues, but what are the most pressing research needs in this field? Well, to me, we have a lot of research telling us that we should look for the disease-modifying agents on the osteoarthritis, which I think is important. But in the primary care perspective, I think we really need to look at the preventive measures. What kinds of preventive measures or what are the combinations of preventive measures that once should be taken in order to prevent or to reduce the incidence of the osteoarthritis or any kinds of osteoarthritis or to reduce the severity of symptoms? If it's not going to reduce the incidence, will it be going to reduce the severity? I think this kind of preventive studies may take a few years to do. It will be an expensive trials. It's not easy to find the funders, but I think this is important because once the GPs or the patients know that if you're doing this, a few years later, you will be having less chance of developing a certain disease that will actually motivate both sides to do better. So this is one thing. And of course, I also want to know about the education. To me, I, I spend a lot of time to teach my GP colleagues on pain management. I always have my question is how we can actually do the education research that we can assess not only the knowledge of the GPs who receive the training, but does the education actually change their behavior, change their clinical practice, and how it translates to a meaningful outcomes on our patients. So this is very important. We always say that we need a lot of training, we need a lot of activities for our GPs, but how does it help and how is it going to translate to the care of our patients, given that we also have the constraint of like uh, time limitation for each consultation, et cetera. I fully, fully agree with you that, um, you know, if we're talking a lot about educating our healthcare professionals, it's so important that we actually evaluate and audit to see whether we actually truly make a difference both to their knowledge base, but ultimately probably more importantly to patient care. George, any thoughts? Well, I would agree with an awful lot of what Regina said and, and, and support that. I think, like her, I, I think it's still important that we keep looking for new and novel disease-modifying treatments, of course. But we mustn't put all our eggs in that basket and think that that's going to be the, the sort of grand solution to this. So I think what people would expect is that you're going to invest in ways of tackling this earlier 
I think the regret that people have sometimes is that it's taken so long either to get a diagnosis or to get treatment working. I think that we should be trying to understand when and how we get effective treatment in earlier and even further back in time, look at what can be done to prevent some of the major drivers of this condition in the first place, linking right back to your first podcast, I suspect there. And I think at the other end, it's that dealing with the complex patient who's got multiple health problems, we're all getting older, it's aging societies around the world. And I think how we maintain movement and activity in spite of joint problems is, is a major challenge. So I, I think we've not quite worked out how to do that yet. So I think there's still some important challenges as well. So What's the most pressing research need? I think for research funders to start prioritising some of the more funds towards osteoarthritis would be my solution to that. So, although everybody always asks for money, don't they? I think money well spent in osteoarthritis research could go a long way. In- yeah, a common theme that I often hear relayed during these conversations is the importance of apportioning this according to the disability that it causes in the community. Mm. Um, which is obviously not happening at the moment. Anyway, we're going to get political if we go down that line. (laughs) Are there any patient-friendly resources or links that you'd like to share that we haven't already spoken about that might shed further light on this topic? I'm not so sure because uh, for me, I always look for some tours in Chinese because people here cannot, many of them do not actually know how to use English. So I I can't find any very useful useful one on the website, but I do create some uh, by myself. So I make a lot of QR codes. I in the old days we use a uh, uh, plan so we we take the pictures and then we, we prescribe the exercise plan to our patients. But nowadays we all use the QR code. So I have I take the videos and then I distribute the QR code to my patients, and then when they go home, they will they will do the exercise. Well, I should do quite a lot. I have like prepared a QR code and covering every part of the body. Fantastic. That sounds like a wonderful resource. If you've got a link, please share it with us and we can put that in in the show notes. I appreciate that QR codes and I assume, is this in Cantonese or Mandarin? Uh, It's in Chinese, in Cantonese. Cantonese, okay. Yeah, Yeah, but share that with us because I'm pretty sure we also have some Chinese listeners as well. George, any, any links that we haven't mentioned that you might like to share? I feel positively lazy compared with that. I think um, (laughs) I I would, it it may be a bit UK centric, but I think Versus Arthritis uh, as an organisation produces a lot of very useful information for people with osteoarthritis. So I would would direct them towards uh, that charity's website in the first instance. They, They have some excellent stuff. Fantastic. That's really, really helpful. And Regina, again, this is more just getting to know both of you a little bit better. But I think my favourite question is, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Well, I always said this should be someone to do it for anything, especially in Hong Kong. I think, well, I think many of you will agree with me that we, uh, as primary care physicians, deal with quite a lot of patients with different kinds of musculoskeletal pain. And with knee osteoarthritis is the commonest one. So we, we've got to deal with this. So if we don't do it, it just go to other orthopedics. Once you go to the orthopedics, they will receive some, uh, what we call the no value care. So they will go for a floscopy and some of them will go for total replacement. But having said that, we still cannot deal with the large pool of patients having the problems. 
So to me, I really want to improve the standard of primary care in musculoskeletal pain management because we are seeing them, no matter you like it or you don't like it, we have to see them because they always come back because of pain. They refuse the medications, they refuse the analgesics, they ask for topical medications, they ask for referral to physiotherapy. So we are seeing them. So I'm always thinking about why we shouldn't be doing a little bit better to help the issues. Since you, you have no choice, your primary care physicians, you cannot turn away the patient and say that, oh, this is not within my scope service. So yeah, it sounds like a, a great rallying cry to primary care out there because there is so much that can be done yeah. um, at that level and there's so much opportunity. George, any, any thoughts in terms of why, why you do what you do? I'm Scottish. I was grown up with a love of the underdog. And I, I remember when I, I moved from Scotland to England, it was to take up a job working in a chronic pain centre. And I think when I made that decision, I think a lot of the people around me said, oh, my goodness, really, these are awfully difficult people and you, you can't do anything for them. And it's a, and that, that to me is always thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll see. Let, let's, uh, we'll, we'll prove you wrong on that. So, and I still feel that osteoarthritis, unfortunately, despite its you know, huge impact, is the underdog in all of this. I think there's still an awful lot that people like myself and others can do to find out more, make life better, make it a bit more prominent in people's minds and policymakers' minds. So I think that's what motivates me. And then it's, it's just, I, I like working with people and I think that research is probably my thing. So it's, uh, so it's a combination of those, but I, yeah, the underdog mentality still kind of does it for me, really. <laughs> I'm sold. I think I might do osteoarthritis research. That sounds like a great career <laughs> option. <laughs> All right. Um, now, George, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Oh. I can take the turn first. <laughs> you can yeah, go first. Yeah, like Regina Cook. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I would say the most terrible symptom in osteoarthritis is not pain, but it's the loss of motivation to get better for the patients or to or lose the motivation to get someone better for the GP. So this is for the billboard that I had. That I stay watched. positive, stay hopeful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, really, really important and sage, sagely advised. George, any thoughts after reflection? So to, to me, it would be it matters more than you realize. I think it's, it, it's on the surface, this thing is something that affects lots of people. Everybody's got it, all of this sort of nonsense. But actually, if you listen hard, it makes a massive difference to people's lives and healthcare professionals can make a massive difference. I mean, I think we've all heard accounts of where, you know, a timely and good intervention from a healthcare professional has made all the difference actually to somebody with osteoarthritis. So I think that for me is, it matters and it matters more than you realize. Yeah, so don't, don't take this lying down and be proactive about getting out there and, and doing something yeah. about it. Yeah. Regina, in closing, yeah. is there yeah. any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people out there with osteoarthritis? Well, uh, have you ever watched a movie called Mary Poppins? So it's a movie and it's a book. So I love the sentence that everything is possible, even the impossible. 
I, I really I kind of like don't give up. So everything is possible. Yeah. yeah, wonderfully positive advice. I can see you flying away with the umbrella right now. George, any feedback, thoughts, advice? It's similar in, in the sense that I think all the research that we've been involved in suggests that the future pain and disability, etc., is still modifiable no matter where you are actually on this spectrum. This idea that somehow the damage is done and you've got this thing in the, the future set is, is wrong, actually. I think all of the research suggests that it's still modifiable. And that's where I think a lot of the positive hope comes from. That's a really great way to finish. Very thoughtful advice. And I just want to close in thanking both of you. It was wonderful to have a chance to chat to you and gain your insights and thoughts on a really, really important topic, which I'm sure our listeners will love. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'll go away and mock up that billboard. (laughs) (laughs) That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.